Please keep that passage open. We will be following it quite closely. On the 5th of January 1953 in Paris, a controversial new play premiered. Waiting for Godot by Samuel Beckett was famously summed up by one theatre critic as nothing happens, nobody comes, nobody goes. It featured two tramp-like characters in an undefined situation, trapped in a meaningless repetition of the same actions. Its opening words were, nothing to be done. And this sums up the view of life that it offered, very bleak, though often very funny with it, a tedious repetition, the same old cycle of events, given little colour by attempts to give it meaning. And so Ecclesiastes has seemed at first glance, hasn't it, to echo this sort of sentiment. It begins with a similar cry that all is meaningless or gone in a breath. And in chapter one, there's a strong sense of there being no ultimate purpose or pleasure in the repetitions of life or nature or in the work that we have to do. But unlike a play such as Godot with its bleak humanist mindset, this isn't where it leaves us and the difference is God. Chapter 2 has begun to show us this and here in chapter 3, the spin on time begins to be a lot more positive. We're in a world that has fallen very far from God. Life is often hard, it's often repetitive, but God's order and providence is still around us. And where this often enigmatic book is taking us to is that in the end, true meaning is only in him. And so what the first eight verses of this chapter, the time poem, as it's often known, gives us, is 14 pairs of opposites that challenge us towards a God-centred view of life. Now, if we notice in the previous chapters, we've often seen the phrase, under the sun, used by Solomon when describing life's hardships. (coughs) He uses it again later in this chapter, doesn't he? Um, In verse 16, when describing corrupt justice. But here in verse 1, we see that there's a time for everything, not under the sun, but under heaven. The difference in the choice of words isn't an accident, because he's talking now about God's providence. We're not just under the sun in its vast inhuman indifference, we're under heaven. And so while time doesn't permit us this evening to run through all these pairs of precepts, what might be seen to be thematically running through them is this. Firstly, they ask us to see God's order in a way that is both a comfort and a challenge. They begin, don't they, with that most basic of all certainties, that there's a time to be born and also a time to die. We love the new birth bit, don't we? We're less keen on what happens at the other end. 
Commentators have different views about whether this means that the time we die is always ordained by God, although clearly sometimes it is, or whether it's just reminding us that in this world, death is a fact. It will happen. There's a popular website called The Death Clock into which you input various bits of information about yourself and it sort of tries to work out how many seconds you've got to live based on your lifestyle, how much you eat, how much exercise you take, all that kind of thing. I don't really recommend that you go home and try it. It's kind of taking an educated guess and you will only make yourself extremely paranoid. But if thinking about this serves anything it is to show us how fleeting time can be. But embedded in this verse for us is perhaps a reminder that death is part of the world because it has divorced itself from God and that Jesus has stepped into this brokenness to redeem it and that out of his death comes for us a life beyond the grave if we trust in what he has done for us and follow him. Death is desperately hard for us to process whenever it occurs. Losing loved ones is as hard as facing our own mortality, and it's harder still if it seems to happen before its time. But God has given us, in Jesus Christ, an eternal hope. The Bible never flinches from the horrible reality of dying but it does always point us back to God as the only sure ground on which we can deal with it. And this isn't the only one of these phrases to challenge us that accepting God's sovereignty and providence means that he's in, accepting that he's involved in both the seemingly positives and negatives of these pairs of opposites. For example, when the other half of this verse talks about planting and uprooting, the Hebrew word carries the sense of both uprooting and harvesting within it. Yes, we can think of the ordering of the seasons that nourishes and feeds us, but again, there's something else too. When we work for God's kingdom, perhaps in an evangelistic context, when we invest in others and do our best to help them, the wait for the harvest is often painfully long. Will we have faith that it will come in the end? When we want something and it doesn't come when we want it in our timing, the waiting can be painful too. But the root word here asks us to think about uprooting as well. We know that in Genesis, Abraham became our father in faith because he uprooted himself at God's command. Also, in the Old Testament, this language of planting and uprooting often refers to God's relationship with his people. God planted Israel as a fruitful vineyard, uprooting evil peoples to do it. But when Israel rebels, it is in turn uprooted into exile before eventually being planted again. Jesus challenges us, doesn't he? that we are branches of his vine who must remain planted in him by a strong prayer life, through relationship with his word, through our personal life choices to be fruitful. So God is at times involved 
in both planting and uprooting and harvesting. Similarly, God is involved sometimes in tearing down and building. We see in Genesis, God tears down the Tower of Babel to deal with man's arrogance, but he also builds his church. His will and his purpose and his providence at times involve both sides of these coins. And for us to acknowledge God's sovereignty over our lives sometimes means we have to take them both. Secondly, life brings us both joy and pain, laughing and weeping, peace and war, mourning and dancing. We can't expect life in this world as it is to give us one but never the other, but we can know that it never goes on forever. The science fiction author Ray Bradbury wrote a novel called Fahrenheit 451 in which he imagines a hedonistic society burning books because it doesn't want to be challenged by what they contain. At the end of all this, one of the characters goes off to join a community of people who are secretly hoarding books, clinging on to their contents and memorising them. And this time poem is quoted to show that the tyranny they have escaped from will fall in the end because renewal and change and an end to the time of suffering is part of life as well. There's a time to tear, probably meaning the Jewish practice of tearing clothes in time of grief, but also a time to mend. We can also know, can't we, that through all things, God is always with us. And we can also know that it's not for nothing. David writes in one of the Psalms that God records all our tears. He's not indifferent to our grief. And whatever we feel, whatever we go through, (coughs) we know that God has felt it too. Because we see Jesus weep for others, don't we? And in Gethsemane, out of fear for himself. God is also sorrowed and grieved by our sin and our rebellion. And sometimes too, perhaps, we might even feel challenged to a different kind of weeping. Um, In Victorian England, two Salvation Army officers struggling in their city with um, outreach and community engagement wrote to William Booth asking for permission to move on. He wrote back with two simple words, try tears. It was a challenge to them about desperation. Thirdly, some of these undoubtedly challenge us on the right and wrong times for us to do things. When is it right to speak or to keep silent, for instance? Isn't that a piece of wisdom that we very often learn the hard way? Some of them, as well, are, to say the least, a little bit cryptic. What does scattering stones and gathering them mean? there are some very weird and wonderful interpretations of this phrase out there. 
One perhaps might be suggested by Matthew chapter 24, in which Jesus prophesies the destruction of the temple by saying that not one stone will be left on another. Likewise, gathering stones is often taken to mean the times when people would gather stones to build something, especially an altar. Or perhaps we could think of the story in Joshua chapter 4 when memorial stones are gathered to commemorate God's deliverance of the people. Because when we're in a time of mourning or weeping, when life is throwing everything at us, it helps to keep us grounded in our faith sometimes if we pause to take stock of all that God has done for us. And so... While there are ways in which the phrases or precepts of this time poem challenge us to think about how we work through life's times and choices or accept God's sovereignty, our teacher goes on to ask us to consider something else from it too. In verse 9, he asks once again a question that was raised in chapter 1. What does a worker gain from his toil. We remember in Genesis 3 how after the falling away from God, man is sentenced to toil for everything by the sweat of his brow. In Ecclesiastes, we've seen how frustrating that can turn out to be. And that, I believe, is the burden that verse 10 refers to. But it's answered here by verse 11. God has made everything beautiful, or a lot of translations use the word appropriate, in its time. And there being times for all things challenges us, doesn't it? That we need to be stewards of time, seeking wisdom for what to do and when. I'm sure and I hope it's not just me that keeps telling yourself that there's that thing you get to you need to get done and six months later you might do it. And so the wisdom literature of the Bible teaches us to navigate life by seeking wisdom from our creator. And in the New Testament, James tells us this. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. Ecclesiastes stands at a kind of midpoint between that falling away from God and Jesus who comes to show us all the way back. And it shows that man has not been left alone. But while the long history from Abraham to Jesus works itself out and we in turn await the final redemption when he comes again, verse 11 also tells us that God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. C.S. Lewis famously said that if we have a desire in our hearts that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most likely explanation is that we were made for another. Augustine reminds us too that God made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. God has placed eternity 
in our hearts to remind us precisely of this. You may have heard the popular evangelical phrase, it's almost a cliche, that there's a God-shaped hole inside each of us. What perhaps is slightly less well-known is that this is a slight rephrasing of words spoken, not by a Christian, but by an atheist thinker called Jean-Paul Sartre, who said that when we lose the sense that we are eternal, we have nothing in our lives but the tedious toil that Ecclesiastes describes, relieved by whatever we choose to relieve it with. And this leaves a hole in us the size of God. As an atheist, he said two other things that were very telling. He said, we lose meaning when we lose the illusion, as he sees it, of being eternal. He also said, and remember he's speaking as an atheist, that God does not exist, I cannot deny, but that my whole being cries out for God, I cannot forget. So this man who thinks that science has disproved God, who embraces a worldview that shuts God out, is left with a lack of meaning and a recognition that only God is going to fill that gap. Atheist though he is, verse 11 is still so true for him. He has eternity in his heart. Yet, the verse concludes, we can't see everything. Only God can. Likewise, verse 14, I know that what God does will endure forever Nothing can be added or taken away from it. God does this so that men will revere him. So we have eternity in our hearts, so we know that we have something that only God can fill. But we can't see everything, firstly because we're not God, but secondly because every time we think we can see everything, we make a mess of it. In Genesis 3, once again, man tries to be like God, to define good and evil away from God's guidance, and in doing so, loses everything. So we need to do what verse 14 tells us to do. Revere God. Come to him in humility. Ask him time and time again to forgive us, to reveal his presence to us, knowing that he alone sees everything and that he alone can fill that deepest gap in our lives, our needs, our identity, and follow him. Seek his wisdom for the stewardship of our lives. And in doing so, as verses 12 and 13 tell us, Enjoy life with the meaning and dignity that this gives us. Enjoy your career and the fruits of your labour. Enjoy doing good. Enjoy life's pleasures. Because that's the gift of the God who gives us meaning and dignity. 
And so as Solomon goes on in verse 16 to comment on the corruption he sees in places where justice is exercised, again, this is under the sun. Either side of this, in verses 15 and 17, is a summing up of everything that this chapter is pointing to. That the God who gives time meaning will, in due time, bring everything to account. Time in God's hands is not just chronological minutes and hours following each other. It's also teleological. It has a purpose. It's going somewhere and it's building up to his final redemption and judgment. And so the only question really to be begged by that is this. On that day, will we be standing in Christ? Will we have used time wisely to seek God as to how and when to act and to cling to him? The only answer to life's questions of meaning. And if, having taught us all this, the chapter seems to change tack suddenly in verse 18 with its comparison of people and animals, it's actually not. In showing us that we're like animals here and then gone, Solomon examines once again our state after our wrenching of ourselves away from God. He's already shown how God brings all things to account and judgment in his due time. And now he ponders eternity. After all this, what? Man is just as mortal as the animal. Who knows, he asks, if the spirit of man rises upwards. We can enjoy life. We can use time well. We can recognise God's providence and sovereignty. But then what? And so the Bible's wisdom literature asks questions from an Old Testament standpoint that we know are ultimately answered in Christ. For example, Job, in the midst of his trial, cries out that there is no mediator between man and God to lay hands on them both. And we know that Paul answers this in 1 Timothy. There's one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. And so here, Solomon's pondering about life after death is answered by everything that Jesus will go on to tell us about eternity, answered by all the promises that Jesus gives to his people about heaven, that he has prepared a place for us. And after the weariness of this world, that's where we're going. And so Ecclesiastes 3 then, having noted the weary frustration of a world that has wrenched itself away from God, answers it by teaching us that even in this broken world that our sin and rebellion has made, God's order and providence runs through everything and challenges us to find wisdom and meaning in him. 
And finally, to know that we stand with the confidence in the answer to Solomon's final question about eternity. That even though we don't know everything because we're only small little fallen people, we have been created and redeemed by the God who does and who has placed eternity in each of our hearts.